Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Fred Fuck from long distance somehow gets it to go. We can't believe it. The hat and the glasses come off. Fred Funk with the birdie at 16. Ah, uh, yes. The putting prowess of one Frederick Funk. Uh, there three years ago uh, at the Senior Players Championship in Caves Valley, which is going to host the BMW Championship this year. But uh, welcome to Chirps on the T, episode number two. I'm shocked that we're back. And here's uh, the man who made that putt. Fred Funk, eight-time winner on the PGA Tour, a um, couple of majors in the Champions Tour. What do you remember about that putt, by the way? Well, now you reminded me about the putt. Yeah, it was a impossible putt to even think about making. And it, had a, it was, what, 60 feet? It was forever with a big break. Just one of those silly putts that went in. Um, that actually was a magical scoring week because I was – Actually hurting that week. My back was not good. You were hurting. And um, I had a hole in one on the next hole. Uh, I had the par three down the hill. I think that might have been Saturday's round, I think. Yeah. And then I just made putts and getting up and down from everywhere because I was really struggling to finish that tournament. I think I finished third or fourth. Something like that. I I played really good on a golf course that was very difficult uh, tee to green. Um, it was long. It was, we were playing it at about 7,300 yards. It was ridiculous how long they had us back there. <laughs> and, uh, I was hitting hybrids and three woods in the par fours and, and it was, it was crazy, but I had, uh, two, I think Saturday, Saturday's round and Sunday round, I had ridiculously good finishes coming in on those, uh, 15, 16, 17 and 18 and 18. I was worried about whether I could get over the Creek. It was, I had to hit a yeah. good one to get over that creek Long the way I was feeling. Um, so yeah, that, I remember that putt now that you brought it up. I forgot about that. I actually forgot about the whole one until you brought up my putt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. And I remember the shot on 16 because it was either right before or afterwards. I mean, you bent, you, you bent at mid waist. You were like, your back was so bad. I'm like, what's going on? I, you know, I can't tell from that yeah. far out. And I'm like, you, you paused, sat there for a minute, and then started walking towards the hole. And I saw you after the hole, and you're just like, uh, just, I'm just trying to get off the course, dude. I'm just, yeah, you know, I, I was, well, I, I was in tears course. on 16 one day. I was playing with Tom Byram, and I hit a shot in there, and, and it just felt like a knife went in my back. And, and I was, I was playing so good or scoring so good. I wasn't playing great, obviously, but I was scoring really good. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't withdraw. I was just trying to get to the house every day. And, um, it, it was, it was crazy how bad I felt and how good I scored on a course like that golf course. The reason I remember that tournament real well is because I was not paying attention to the tournament so much. I was actually doing a golf show for NBC universal and I had played in the pro-am for the tournament a couple of weeks before and they give you caddies for, for at caves. And I just happened to have a caddy that just wasn't with it. I don't know, I'll say his name in a minute. He just, Whatever, whatever reason, you know, I'm not a pro, obviously, but I, you know, I'm a three handicap. I like to play really good on a really good golf course and I'm flying greens and I'm coming up short and I'm like, Evan, like something's not right here. Cause they, you know, he had taken my bag and lightened it up. So my bag wasn't there. He just put another bag. So my range finder was not my range finder. He had his own, but I'm like, something's not right here. And at the turn, I went to the, to the shack and I got my range finder out and I was kind of late to the tent tee. I said, I'll see you down there. And I, 
hit my drive and I started walking to my ball and I, here I go. I pull my range finder out and I can see Evan up the fairway and he just said something. I go, I got it. I got it. And on the back nine, all of a sudden, Oh, look who's kind of pin seeking for a second. So after the round of golf, you know, you're not allowed to tip the caddies there. And I said, I'll tell you this, Evan, even if I could have tipped you, I wouldn't yes. have. This was, I'm not sure what's going on. And he was really apologetic. He was like, you know, I'm sorry, dude, something's not right. So he goes, unbeknownst to me, he starts to sharpen his game, right? So here comes the real pro-am on, on Wednesday of that tournament. And uh, McCarron, I always want to call him Chris, Scott McCarron, uh, who, uh, his caddy had lost his father, so they needed a caddy for the pro-am. And I think it might have been Bernard who said, I know this kid, Evan, who's worked a few times on the tour. He goes, why don't you just try him out for the, for the pro-am? Well, like after nine holes, McCarron's like, dude, do you want to work for the week? And he's like, I remember yeah. that. Yeah. I remember that. Right. Yeah. And here comes them down the stretch. They're going to win this thing. And uh, they come off 18, and I'm standing there. And I just, you know, everybody's congratulating. And McCarron had to wait for a few of uh, you guys to come in. And so I'm just standing there, and I see Evan. And I just look, and I go, Evan. And he just turns to me, and he, ru- he drops the bag, rushes it over, and puts my, my hand and my head in his hands. And he's like, Do you realize? what you did for me. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. He goes, I just felt so bad after that round that I just kind of went back and sharpened everything, redid some, some yardages, blah, blah, blah. And lo and behold, this guy wins. He wins on the bag for McCarron and uh, you know, nice little chunk of change there for four days work or four and a half days work, but just amazing. I do remember uh, that story. I also remember being on the putting green. It was after pro-am day and Bashadi and Gary Williams, uh, I just oh finished playing and they were up having some beer up there on the porch, which overlooks the putting green. And I uh, just yelled up, Hey, how you guys doing? I went up there and ended up sitting down. And about five beers later, I, <laughs> I was still up there. I was having a ball. Those guys were fantastic. First time I really met Shotty. Absolutely. He's a great guy. Great guy. Yeah. Great guy. Um, yeah, he's got me in trouble a few times at the ACC tournament as far as cigar smoking goes indoors. <laughs> uh, we'll tell that story one day. Uh, by the way, you mentioned Gary Williams, the Hall of Fame coach. He'll join us next week uh, on one of the episodes, um, which will be fun to talk golf. Uh, and obviously, we're talking to him about March Madness as well because of that run that I got to be on in 2002, the national championship run. Coming up later on this podcast in a few minutes, Steve Sands from NBC Sports uh, will join us. Um, he does a tremendous job in a dual role of play-by-play, and then he becomes the post-round interviewer, which is something that is a lost art, and that guy is a Hall of Famer when it comes to that. Um, but, but just finished was the Honda Classic, and I'm looking at the leaderboard, and I'm like, well, who the hell's Matt Jones? I, what? Who's that? This guy wins after seven years between wins, uh, a five-stroke victory at the Honda Classic. Uh, guy missed one green in the final round. Uh, just what, what your, your thoughts on how he closed out. Well, it didn't surprise me. His ball striking has always been known as being one of the best. And he just hits the ball really solid. But really, what's fun to watch is the fact that he just takes no time. He, he's up over the ball, and it's, he's as quick as anybody could possibly be hitting a golf ball, especially when everything's on the line. And you're coming down the, the uh, bear trap. And that would make anybody kind of pause a little bit, but he stays right in his routine and it's hit great shots coming down the stretch and, and was really fun to watch. So didn't surprise me 
his ball striking was that that good. What surprised me more is that he hadn't won since seven years ago. Uh, yeah. And then he yeah. just – it was shocking to me what the scores were like at Honda early in the week with a 61 and a 62. I played that golf course. Right. I mentioned in our first podcast that I think it's uh-huh. harder than TPC when the wind's blowing down there like it usually does. And they usually have really high rough, but the golf course is just so penal. There's so much trouble everywhere. And right. I, that course ate me alive. I mean, I, I probably averaged about 78 on that daggone thing. It's it, crazy. Wow. Um, and then they go out there and, and uh, Aaron Wise shoots 61, I think, and Hagee shoots 62 or the other way around. And, yeah. and I'm going, where are they? Where did they cut over? I mean, <laughs> there's, they must have skipped some holes, but. Uh, and then the, and then the teeth of the course showed up again on Saturday and Sunday and you get yeah. 12, 12 under winning by five. That's uh, that doesn't happen very often where the guy runs away with it. And it's funny because you, you see a guy early in the week and and he maintains that pace of uh, playing like Aaron was early in the week. And and, uh, yeah. and Matt Jones and you just see guys. It's still difficult to create that separation and maintain the separation. And he did. And 700 was second. So uh, that's one where you finish second and you don't even think about, well, I didn't even have a chance of winning. <laughs> it's fine. I'm really right. happy with right. second. <laughs> so uh, Matt Jones, uh, four, fourth winner this year in his 40s uh, on the PGA Tour. It was his 330th start, um, the sixth player to win uh, with six years in his previous win. You went six years once. So tell me what Matt Jones was going through during that time when you're wondering, I'm playing well, but am I ever going to hold a trophy? Well, you wonder, I mean, it's, you really, it's difficult to break through that door. You keep knocking at it a few times and you not win. And then you're just, when am I going to get that next opportunity? And then you just kind of put self imposed pressure on yourself to try to get that win again. And you just never know when that door is going to open up. But, uh, it's it's still fun to get yourself in in the contention and to try to win the tournament and you just keep plugging along because you just realize how difficult it is to win out there. Matt Jones now exempt through the 22-23 season uh eligible will play in the 20 this year's Masters. The last year time he won was the the Houston Open. He had a week to get ready for the Masters. It was the very next week so he got in on the final tournament. This time at least he's got a a couple of weeks to get ready uh, for Augusta National. Uh, by the way, just a postscript to the last week's show. So Lee Westwood did take his son to play Augusta National in a practice round, and his son uh, won the money. <laughs> Didn't know that. Um, not because he scored better, but I think he set he set a goal of 83 for his son to shoot. That's pretty damn good from any tee box at Augusta National. Um, and he chipped in on 18 for birdie for an 82, so he took the money there. That's pretty cool. Um all right, so Matt Jones is your winner. He's got a bunch of stuff coming his way. Uh, some of the other side stories. Uh, Camilo Vajegas needed a tie for third in order to keep his card. And, I mean, by a stroke, he misses keeping his card. So now he's going to be uh, out of that 125-150 group is what he's playing out of. Uh, with the, he had a major medical uh, extension. What the hell is a major medical extension? Well, if you have a serious issue, uh, his was his daughter. He lost his daughter, right? And yeah. uh, he has he has had some injuries and been fighting that. But then he had the daughter. Um, her, yeah, Mia. Amazing yeah, story. 
And amazing what his wife and him had done putting that room. They put a, they got together and have sponsored a room in the uh, Jack Nicholas the the, um, the children's hospital or yeah 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 yes yes Nicholas for the Barbara Barbara yeah. Nicholas they've got a room in there now they've sponsored a room where the um, frontline folks the the medical personnel can go in and just de- decompress oh you know, really yeah a lot obviously sure. going on yeah phenomenal um, so he misses by a stroke uh, Denny McCarthy. Another, by the way, folks who don't know, this is a Maryland-centric show. Fred Funk from Tacoma Park, Maryland. Chick Hernandez from Silver Spring. We're going to have uh, the young fella, um, Steve Stans, uh, who is from, uh, I wonder where he's going from. He's from Rockville. He's from Potomac. He's from Bethesda. You know, it's all kind of hunky-dory. Yeah, that was, parts, you know, you needed, bit. I couldn't get in there. I needed a passport to get into Montgomery County from PG County. But, <laughs> um the uh denny that's what i was going to say denny i heard the other day is actually from yeah. tacoma park but i know his parents really well uh yeah well his dad not his, not his uh, mom right but right. uh that family grew up in college park woods where i grew up and uh and then okay. denny went on i don't really i've met denny i don't know denny uh but he's been playing right. great he's playing really solid playing great Number one putter on the tour last year. It's quickly rising that category that. again. It's his first Number ever. One t- the, wow. wow. Oh, yeah. That's a good stat to lead right Number there. One putter. That's, <laughs> yeah, Completely, that, that's, right? He's yeah. phenomenal. He's phenomenal. Uh, first ever top three finish for Denny McCarthy. Uh, it's his best finish in 91 starts. Um, and yeah, he's played a few times at my club manor. I've seen his in fact last year. His father was following his other son playing in an A-team event. And it dawns on me, wait a minute. Denny's playing right now in a tournament it's a sunday and so he, i said hi to him he goes yeah I, I already know what he's doing he's already got his phone out he's checking his he's checking his one son's score while watching his other son play that was pretty cool um and the other story is aaron wise you mentioned aaron wise uh who was uh the the the, the halfway leader at one point he went 64 64 and then goes 77 73 what i want to talk to you about and you mentioned it um was how that course's teeth can can rear up. It was windy on Sunday. The greens, they said, were glass-like. And from 27 feet, Aaron Wise, who's one shot back on the 10th green, four putts from 27 feet, and it's over for him. He also three-putted another green. Um, I, Fred, I, you know, I, I, like I said, I'm an amateur. I've had putting issues. It gets in your head. I mean, how do you come back from that? Or, or I mean, I just... Have you had a four putt in competition? I had a five putt in competition. I'm the sorry, five what? putt, the, the better to putt. most putt with uh, Tiger. I didn't talk about that last time, did I? No. So uh, Gary Coke is the better to most narrative uh, that you heard about every 10, 15 minutes at the players on absolutely. Saturday of that. Well yeah, deserved. absolutely it was. But I was that was on a Saturday. I was playing in front of Tiger and Phil on that Saturday. I'm on. I'm in contention. I'm on seventeen. I hit it to 15 feet right of the hole, and I five-putted, my only five-putt on tour. And Tiger and Phil witnessed it. And then right behind me, oh, no. after I hit my second shot on into 18, I heard this huge roar, and I knew it was a Tiger roar. And I go into the scorer's tent, and I go, what did Tiger do on eight, on 17? And the guy played it on his phone, and I went, you got to be kidding me. He almost hit it in the water. He could have oh. putted it in the water easily could have putted right. it in the water from there and he ended up making it for two i'm i could have made two three at worst four i walk off with six <laughs> and, 
So, so hold on. So you're telling me that the backstory to the better than it's most the worst of all time that you, <laughs> you were forced. You were four putts more on that green from roughly in that area. Is that I where was you were the green or? for birdie. Wait, hold on a second. <laughs> Wait a second. You're 15 feet right of the hole, and you four putted from there. Five putted from there. You five, five, five putted. putted. I can't even he say can't it. Even say five I, I can't even say it. I can't do it. It's, oh my! I God. actually made a three footer for my fifth putt. I I couldn't. I, I. It was a nightmare. It was one of those. You know, the, it was on a slope, and I hit yeah. the high lip. I hit the high lip. I hit the high lip. I hit the yeah. high lip. I kept hitting high lip. Oh my god. And it kept coming back down the hill and I kept missing the damn thing. And uh, you know, that's my hometown crowd. I'm sitting there going, yeah. I was devastated. I should have walked straight into the water and gotten out on the other side and just play 18 soaking wet because that's how that would have been great. It, that would have been, been in hindsight. I wish I did that. But because I know the oh water's only about two feet deep. So I, I could have could have well, been over my head. It's only up to your yeah. It's only up to your nipples. That's great. Um, <laughs> so let me ask this then: Was there ever a time after that that Tiger said, "What What did you do again on Saturday?" No, you know he left that one alone. I don't know why because he, he, okay. he can give it to you, but he never said anything about that. Wow! But uh, back that to Aaron Wise, he just uh, he actually yes. works with Jeff Smith, which is my coach's or my son's coach. Works out of Summerlin. Okay. He's really great golf coach or uh, teaching pro. I should say. And mm -hmm. Aaron's a great ball striker, very an analytical type player. Um, yeah. But he's been struggling with putting. That's kind of his nemesis. So he can get hot. He hits the ball. Obviously, with 64-64, he can really go. And then, right. then, then that those demons show up, and all of a sudden, they're demons. You, know, they're, you, you want to knock them off your shoulder, but they stay there. They keep climbing up. So it's it's tough to overcome that, but I think he's a type of player that he'll just move on, and he'll he'll work at it. He'll come up with something. We all do. Yeah, that, that's, to. and you, you just come that, up with something. That's the phrase that is, that is, you come up with something. I went to, you know, I went to. I used to play golf uh, exclusively right-handed for fifteen years. Made the switch to lefty when I was in Augusta, and um, and then I putted righty until like four years ago four or five years ago and then i switched all to lefty but you do what you can you find what you can and last year when i was having trouble just just didn't feel good i i went to sergio before i even heard sergio did it i went to the closed eyes inside 10 feet and oh my god i mean all of a sudden i found the the, the just the face of the putter i felt that difference because instead of hitting at the ball i was never saw i never felt the ball just that's right the key it. to putting like, actually uh, that it really is because I think the yips or whatever you want to call it, uh, anxiety over the putt is usually becomes the ball becomes the object and you don't want it to be, you want it to just be something that's in the way and the stroke just glides through where the ball is. And when you start having that ball become the object, it creates that anxiety. And when you close your eyes or look at the hole, like uh, speed does, or used to do a lot more of, um, you concentrate more. The ball's not there anymore. Now the stroke is just smooth and silky, and and it's surprising how good your touch is when your eyes are closed. You you think you're not going to hit it solid. Number right. one, you hit it a lot more solid. Right. Like you're saying, you feel the ball, you feel the face, 
and your touch and speed are really good. So, you know, your mind is, can take over and the feel, the instinctiveness of putting comes back. And that's what the whole goal of really anything in sport, but in golf, especially is, is to try to get back to being uh, reactive and instinctive and not trying to even hit at the golf ball on a full swing or all the way down the putting all the way down to chipping. You know, you get the chip yips and you see the guys and they kind of stab at the ball. Well, that's, yeah. that's, that ball becomes the object and it creates all, all that anxiety and you, you just got to get past that somehow. So Fred Funk's uh, swing tip to, for you amateurs out there is just uh, shut your eyes and pray. <laughs> is what, uh, that's going to work out well for you. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty true, actually. <laughs> Steve fans, can you hear us? Yeah. Hey, Jake, don't worry, buddy. There it is, ladies and gentlemen, from NBC, Steve Sands, who joins uh, another Marylander. Uh, it's a very local show. He's got his Maryland shirt on as we as we record this podcast. Maryland, uh, on your capitals. All right, fine, whatever. But there's no Nationals gear. There's no, I mean, you know, you're an Orioles guy. It's a, it's, I'm a Nationals guy, but it's only spring training, Chick. We're in college basketball and hockey season right now. I didn't know that. I didn't realize there was hockey going on. I'm sorry. I was looking at golf and college basketball. If you, if you look, if you look all the way up in the standings, all the way to the top of the standings, you'll uh-huh. see the caps at the top of the board. Are you happy? So we're going. We're going hockey now, Fred. For a second, uh, are you happy with Peter Peter Laviolette as the head coach now? You you like what you're seeing? I love Peter. Oh, I love the caps. Oh. I I used to go to all the caps games back in the day. And actually played back in the day with uh, Dave Christian and Darren Beach. Played golf a couple times with them. And that was back in the 80s when everybody owned a Ping I-2s. And Dave Christian was about a one – he was pretty much a scratch golfer. And he could hit the Ping 2-iron – or actually it was a Ping 1-iron back when people carried 1-irons. And that was his driver, and he'd fly at 260, Mm. which was a long way even back then with the old Bellotta ball. And he was amazing. But the hockey guys are so – they're great athletes. I mean, you think how easy it is for them to hit a golf ball when they are hitting a puck on skates that the puck's moving, they're moving, and somehow they manage to hit the slap shot from, you know, 100 and something miles an hour. It's crazy. And uh, it was fun watching those guys. And I love playing with those, you know, back when Mike Gartner was on that team, yeah. Langway, you know, back in the day. So uh, – I'm a big Caps fan, huge. Love it. Freddie, how you doing, man? I haven't seen you in a long time. Good, Steve. Yeah, no kidding. You're doing a great job. Oh, you're... you're making everybody cry. Oh, my God. It's a... <laughs> You know, they should just put a, a, a Chiron up when you pop out and just call it the crying game. <sighs> it's my, unbelievable. My buddies keep giving me crap. I'm like, fellas, questions don't, at, don't make athletes cry. Answers do. <laughs> the moment does. Fred, I remember when you won the players, which probably in your PGA Tour career was your crowning achievement. And I remember interviewing you. It's an incredibly emotional time for you guys. And uh, my buddies keep killing me, man. And I'm like, fellas, I'm not trying to make anybody cry. I'm not Roy Firestone or Tom Rinaldi. Uh, you know, I'm just, you know, asking what I think are the appropriate questions at the moment. And, you know, Colin Morikawa was incredibly emotional after he won. Bryson DeChambeau, you never know what you're going to get from Bryson. Um, and he was emotional. Justin Thomas, everything about him and his journey in golf, um, 
is about family. His father is a PGA professional, taught him the game, is his only teacher. He grew up, his grandfather, a PGA professional, a massive part of his upbringing and all the way to being a professional golfer at the highest level. His grandfather just passed away in Scottsdale. We were with him when it happened six weeks ago. He was incredibly emotional when that happened. So after all he's gone through with what happened in Hawaii, which was self-induced, and his grandfather – very close to Tiger Woods' car accident. He's had, a, he's had a wild two months. And, you know, the three of us are old enough to know that Justin Thomas could be our kid. So right. to ask him about his grandfather, you know, seemed like a natural thing. I didn't realize he was going to break down that much. Man, I, you know, I, I felt bad for him that he did. But those were tears of joy. You know, right. those were not upsetting things. But, man, these guys – Matt Jones cried yesterday after winning the – Out of the gate. I'm done, Fred and, and Chick. I'm done asking <laughs> questions. If Matt Jones cries after winning the Honda, that's it. I'm done. I'm out. Don't ever interview Bubba Watson. Oh, my man. God. Yeah, that's <laughs> – Bubba Watson, I don't know who cries more, Fred, and you know this. Chick, I'm not sure if you know this or not, but I'm not sure who cries more in the sport of golf. Bubba Watson, who cries literally at the blink of a hat, or Nancy Lopez. Nancy Lopez cries when you just say hello to her. And that's what Bubba Watson's like, too. Well, it was, it was funny with Justin Thomas. When he went off air, the camera was still I on. I know. And he says, look what you've done to me. I, or, I didn't know. know you were doing that to me or I something know, like that. It was, he was he was. But what, what was, that's what I what said. was really good with Justin, I'm sorry, but what was really neat to me, because uh, somebody commented to me, a friend of mine, they texted me, and they said, you know, that was not – fair Steve to make him cry I go what I said yeah. I called him back and I said that, that wasn't anything to do with Steve and I think it was actually neat because Justin is pretty stoic on the golf course he's he's pretty much a flatliner uh he showed a little bit of emotion especially on the 18 when he hit that five wood it stayed out of the water but um it was great to see his emotions come out and how much that meant I thought it was a great interview. I appreciate it and and it really was. And I thought it was great to see Justin react the way he did because you see what people really like when they're like you know, that you know, and what it meant. You to know him. what, Fred? I mean, we've known each other a long time. And, Chick, we've been friends for a long time. Fred, I've interviewed you on live TV before. It's not like it's, – it's a different type of relationship. And I, I think that what people don't understand about sportscasters is that we are the conduit between the player or the athlete and the, and the audience – and we're privy to getting to know you guys. It's not like we're best friends or anything like that. It's a professional relationship. I think people don't realize that there's a line there. It's a professional relationship. More, It's not like when my mother passed away a year and a half ago, it's not like Justin Thomas called me when he saw me a month or two later and he heard about it. He said he was very sorry, but it's not like we're all best friends out there with you guys. You guys are professional athletes and we're sportscasters who are covering the game. So whether I'm in the booth calling it or down on the ground interviewing a guy, to me, Justin Thomas is a great kid. He made a horrific mistake in Hawaii saying what he said. He owned up to it. He admitted it. He's embarrassed by it. He knows it was his fault, and he's trying to move on from it. It seeped into his game. He's played poorly for a couple of months. And in between, it's someone who's very close to him, his grandfather, passes away. And then one of his closest friends, yes, really truly is a close friend of his, Tiger Woods, get into an accident that, you know, almost cost Tiger his life. So here's this mid-20s guy who, of course, is making jillions and jillions of dollars and having a great time playing golf, but he has a real life. So when the audience 
only looks at him as someone who says something horrific and makes a mistake that we've all made mistakes in our lives. And then his grandfather passes away and then a good friend gets into a car accident and he has this incredibly emotional win. It's only natural for us as sportscasters to tell the entire story. I wasn't going to ask him about what happened in Hawaii. I, I think that we've been past that. We've gone through it and he's had to deal with it himself. But the grandfather part, Fred, to me, look, as much as golf is your life, you know, your, your son, your, your wife, your, your family, you know, you're, you have a real life outside of what people just watch on TV. So to me, the last thing to ask him was, and it's in its proper context, too. It's right. not like you just say, hey, how about winning right after your grandfather passed away? You give it as proper context and say about anybody else on the PGA Tour can't speak to you. But for you, family is much a part of this golfing journey as anything else. You recently lost your grandfather six weeks ago. He was a huge part of your life growing up. And as you're a young adult, how much of him was with you today? And clearly the emotion came out, but I didn't mean to make him cry. I just thought it was really cool for the audience who has been hating on Justin for two months because of the mistake he made, as if no one else makes mistakes, as if no one in 25 to 27 years of age makes mistakes. I thought it was really important that people get to see him as the human being, Fred, that you and I know who he is. And, and I, I think that's part of our job. I didn't mean to make him cry. Tell your buddy, I'm sorry. I heard a lot of, of people say, I can't believe you made him cry. I'm like, I didn't mean to make him cry. Right. I just think it's important that when you guys perform at your best and you're so laser focused and so stoic that when you do win, and it's hard to win in professional golf, man, so hard to win, as you know, I think it's important that the audience gets to know you guys, not just root for you as someone who's the straightest driver in the history of the sport, but actually get to know you, Fred, the way Chick and I get to know you, which is a privilege for us that the audience doesn't have. And I think we're the, the conduit between the audience and the athlete. And in this case, Justin's emotions poured out. And I, I thought it was a really cool human moment for him. And I think he won over a lot of fans who he may have lost a little bit after the, the unfortunate incident uh, that took place in Hawaii a couple months ago. Yeah, I think this is a great opportunity when we do these type of formats here with a podcast and you can explain, you know, where it's coming from. But also there's the other side note that I look at while you were talking about that is the fraternity or the brotherhood that we have out on tour, not with just the players and the caddies. It's the officials, the TV crew, you guys, the guy with the camera that's behind you, that's five yards behind you mm -hmm. when you're hitting a shot. We get to know all those guys and they know we know that they're professionals and what they're doing. And most guys would go nuts when they got a camera right behind them. But when you got that fraternity, that brotherhood there, we know what they're doing. We know what you're doing. We know how close we all are and we're all on the road and we just become a family out there. And, and I think it's more so it's a bigger picture than just, the players that they see on TV or the caddies they see on TV. And you only see the officials when they're called in for a ruling. They're like uh, family to us out there. They're out every week setting up the golf course and making rulings for us. And, and then you guys, the, the before and the after the round meeting us on the range prior, how do you feel, you know, how you're hitting the ball, you're, you're reporting and giving information to the people out there that really want to know. And then for you to explain 
you know, where you're coming from in these interviews, it's, it's really, I, I think, interesting. And, the trust and, factor, Fred. And, I mean, look, if you guys, yeah. if athletes, Chick knows this well, if athletes don't trust us, mm-hmm. whether I'm in the booth, in the tower, or down on the ground interviewing you guys, if you guys don't trust us, that's the end of us. And there's a trust factor that goes back and forth where I feel like when you get to know these guys as well as we get to know them in a professional sense, not a personal sense, I feel like you can go certain places uh, that you normally wouldn't go if you don't know them. I remember when Craig Sager passed away, the famous TNT interviewer who wore all the crazy jackets and everybody thought he was famous for that. Greg Popovich is is an all-time great coach, uh, clearly one of the all-time great basketball people in the history of the NBA. And he's a tough guy, a very tough guy. And one of the things Greg always likes to do is kind of needle the interviewer when he has to do those in-between quarter interviews on TNT because he just can't stand being interviewed in the middle of a game. It'd be like me going up to you on 12, Fred, and going, hey, how are these last six holes looking for? You got a one-shot lead coming down the stretch. You know, we, we're not going to do that. So when Greg, Craig Sager passed away, I remember Greg Popovich, of all people, who gave him the hardest time of anybody on the air, said out loud for everybody to hear, the game is worse off today than it was yesterday. When Craig Sager was there at a game, you knew it meant something. He's a credit to the sport. We're all a traveling circus and a family out here, and trust is the biggest thing. He said, I never wanted to do those interviews at the end of the third quarter, but I was always glad to do them after the game because I knew something good happened if he was going to interview us. And what you said is right, Fred. It's a trust factor. You guys have to trust us or else our job will never be done to the fullest. And and to gain that trust, you got to get out there and work. And I, and I think that Justin Thomas understood the line of questioning, not just for me. We just happen to be the first one and the largest audience on NBC. It, the writers then get them. PGA Tour Radio then gets them. All these locals then get them. And, and you know, after about 40 minutes of being asked the same stuff, it kind of wanes down. We just happen to be the first one who gets that opportunity, whether it's on NBC or CBS each week on the PGA tour. So it's an honor to do it. And I'm glad the guys trust me to do it, but man, I do not want to make people cry. I can promise you that's the last thing that we want to do. We just want to ask the right questions. That's all. And put it in its proper context and make you guys shine and not, it's not about us. It's about you guys and your accomplishments. That's it's the best part about sports is watching you guys compete at the highest level. Well, I would say this, that uh, you do Craig Sager proud. Um, <laughs> you know, no, I'm serious because, you know, I know how difficult it can be. And there's also that fine line of when you are, um, you know, you become buds with a guy on tour and you got to, you know, I think younger um, sportscasters, have to figure out what that line is because uh, I've seen it happen a few times where they've gone, they've crossed the line and you can see the athlete going, okay, that was not part of what, you know, that's not, no. I remember uh, in Augusta, I didn't do this, but I remember feeling it. And that's uh, Payne Stewart. This is pre uh, born again, Payne Stewart. I was out with Payne Stewart the night before, you know, thank God there was, you know, social media back then for guys like me, because it would be it'd not be good, but I was out till two two, three o'clock in the morning with pain. Uh, and we were enjoying beverages. And then he's got an early tea time. And he misses on a Friday. He misses the cut. And there's the big gaggle by the tree. 
and there's pain and all this media. I got my microphone in there. My camera's behind me. And somebody says, what do you think is the issue, pain? And he kind of just, he was put his head down. And he's like, I don't know, guys. He starts talking and then he just locks eyes with me. And I give him the look of, shit, I know what the problem is. I mean, you, you can't be out till, you know, you can't be out six hours before your freaking tea time. You got an issue and you got to clean it up. That's what I was trying to say to him. And, you know, that was that moment of, he looked at me, he's like, okay, you can't tell a fib to this guy because he knows exactly what I was doing. And if I was doing a one-on-one, I would never have, you know, said that. But, you know, I went with a, with a question that, you know, he knew what I was saying. Nobody else kind of did. But, like, you know, do you think, you know, you need to concentrate more on the course, you know, and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that's when he gave a great answer. You have to find that, that fine line. I laughed because Steve Sands is a – he's a mogul. He's a media mogul. Yet on Twitter, guy doesn't tweet. and No chance. No chance. No I, tweets. I don't want to amazing. <laughs> Listen, Chick. Uh, first of all, I'm I'm a dinosaur. Okay, my wife makes fun of me all the time. I could barely set up the Zoom call. That's why I was five minutes late. We saw her. How to do that? We saw her. And Valerie. And Valerie <laughs> takes care of everything. But I'm I, I again trust is the biggest thing to me anyway when it comes to the profession. So I don't want to be out at two a.m. and come back home or come back to the hotel and tweet something stupid. Uh, and I, I think yeah. that. First of all, I'm not into social media. If I want to text Fred or call Fred, I'll just call him or text him. Um, if I want to call you or text you, or no, whether it's a friend or a family member or an athlete, uh, Twitter to me is a cesspool. Uh, I, I just think that people are there to hate. Uh, they never have anything positive to say. But Rarely. I, I will say this, Jake. I, I'm, I'm a big believer in this. Whether It doesn't matter what sport. I've covered all. I've been very lucky in my 30 years of doing this, uh, like you have. I, I think, again, I go back to that word trust. To me, if you are a sportscaster and you do this for a living and you continue to keep making a living doing this, it's because the guys, the women or the men, whoever you're covering, trust you. And we get paid to communicate, but we have our jobs because we keep our mouths shut. So mm-hmm. if I know something's going on in Fred's life that's altering his game at the time, whether his son has the flu or whether, you know, his wife's not feeling well or something's going on in the family, you know, that doesn't seep into a broadcast. That's not how it works. You know, that you just can't do those kinds of things. So when someone says, geez, why, why, is, why is Sergio Garcia not playing well right now? Well, you don't say it's because Greg Norman's daughter broke up with him. It's because his swing is just a little bit off. And I, I think that we, we need to make sure that we keep our mouths shut and trust continues to flow between the athletes and sportscasters. To me, Twitter, you know, is something that should not take place when it comes to a relationship between what we do for a living and what athletes do for a living. And no thanks on the Twitter. If you want to call me or text me or email me, I'm always available 24 <laughs> seven, but getting on Twitter and just spewing about how great my life is and where I am. And Hey, what are you doing? I'm in Palm beach right now. About to go watch Matt Jones win. How's, how's your life? Suck it. It's really beautiful down here. I, you know, it's, yeah. I, no, thanks. I'd rather keep things private. Keep, my kids do it. You know, my wife is into it. I, I, no, thanks for me. Get off my you lawn. Know, the, get off my lawn. Yeah. Get off. <laughs> you know, where, where I think back of the, probably the relationship between an athlete and a sportscaster and developing trust was Muhammad Ali and Howard Cosell. 100%. Back, back in the day. I mean, Howard got the trust of Muhammad. And those two, 
Muhammad Ali opened up to Howard all the time and showed his personality, although, you know, he had a great personality anyway, but he and Howard Cosell just played off each other a, a lot. And, and I would have to say that Muhammad made Howard. Oh yeah. Uh, he, he put him on the map and became who Howard Cosell became. And that was all with the trust factor. No question. No question. I, it's, it's, it's really important. Look, Fred, I remember being at the Wendy's three tour challenge with you years ago out in Las Vegas. Uh, and I believe your son, he was, I mean, he's a, he's a tremendous golfer. I think he was like early high school. And I think you guys were homeschooling him. He was traveling with you a yep. lot. And there was a lot of talk over, does he, does, does a kid on tour belong in a high school? And, and the father just goes out and plays and someone stays home and, and has that kind of life. Or is it okay to have kids traveling with, with these hotels and homeschools and all these. I remember that discussion coming up and you will never remember this, Fred, but I remember the discussion coming up on tour about it. And I remember thinking, you know, I'm just going to ask you. So we were in the, we were in the, the breakfast area of the Wendy's three tour challenge out in Vegas. And I remember just saying to you, I go, how's the, cause I have three little kids at the time. I'm thinking how's homeschooling work. And you were telling me, Hey, listen, I'm out here 30 weeks a year, whatever week number it is. I want my family with me. I feel better. I play better. My wife feels better about it. My son needs me around as often as I can be. And I think people need to go about their business in an individual nature. But when we go on the air for the Wendy's three tour challenge, which obviously is a hit and giggle thing at the time, it's not like a regular PGA tour event. I'm not about to start espousing about homeschooling and, and how you and your family are doing it compared to how other families are doing it. That's none of my business. That's just chatter between two people, Chick, who are talking and have a professional relationship. You can't bring that to a national television audience, man. That's not fair. These are personal things that go on. So unless there's a trust factor between both sides, it's just not going to happen. And Howard Cosell and Muhammad Ali, Fred, is the perfect example of that. I mean, two massive, massive personalities, massive egos, massive followings. Imagine mm -hmm. Twitter in the Howard Cosell age. Are you kidding me? Oh, some of the stuff yeah. he said on the air, some of the stuff he did right. on the air. Can I tell you a quick Muhammad Ali story? Yeah. Yes. My, my mom and dad and my brothers and sister and I went to the, the Super Bowl in Minneapolis when the Skins beat the Bills 37-24. It was the Mark Rippon year, the whole thing. And we're sitting in the hotel and it's Saturday night and my dad and my two brothers and my sister are not around. It's just my mom and me. And it's one of those hotels where the, the corridor down to like the, the conference area of the hotel is about a hundred yards long. And my mom and I are sitting in the hotel lobby waiting for my dad, my sister, and my, my two brothers and Muhammad Ali is walking down the hallway. And I look at my mom, I go, mom, she's like, what? I go, look, she goes, what? She goes, oh, that's Muhammad Ali. I'm like, yeah, it's Muhammad Ali. He's by himself. He's walking down. Now he's 50 yards away. He's 40 yards away. I go, mom, you got to say something. She goes, you say something. I go, mom, you got to say something. You're a, you're a woman. You should be nice. You say something. I'm not saying anything. It's Muhammad Ali. We're going back and forth. Now he's 20 yards. He's 10 yards. I'm like, mom, you got to say something. And he's, you know, at this point in his life, Parkinson's had set in. He was shaking, but he was by himself. Muhammad Ali, literally the, as famous a person as you can be on the planet. He gets about five yards away. My mom goes, if you don't say anything, I'm not saying a word. I'm like, God. all right. I look up and I go, champ, you're the greatest. And he looks down without blinking. He goes, you got that right, kid. 
and kept walking. And I thought, I can die and go to heaven. Muhammad Ali just said something that's and a, walked away. I will never forget. That's a great story. Oh, man. Muhammad Ali was fantastic. By the way, the Skins played pretty well the next day and won the yeah. Super Bowl, which is nice. Yeah. Mark Rippon, pretty good. Oh. That's a great story. Um, you talk about great story. The, the trust. I, I realized that I had was doing the right thing. Our, our, our mutual friend is going to join us next year, Hall of Fame coach Gary Williams, yeah. who was well, legendary for – let me just get this press conference over with. And, you know, and he's got a few guys he'll talk to on the side, but, you know, and so, and I'm, you know, at Fox five and I'm a bit off key. I'm, I'm a little bit off kilter. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a smart Alec. Um, so I'm doing my thing. And the first few times that I interviewed coach, um, I just, you know, stayed down here, just this lane. Let's just not veer, veer off from anything. And let's not try to be funny with him because that could backfire. Um, and then all of a sudden things kind of just changed where he would, you know, where his, his sports information department would tell me no. And I would just look at him like, are we doing this? And he's like, yeah. And now he was seeking me out a little bit. Like, okay, this is cool. And I, when I asked to go on the trip to Italy, 12 day trip, expecting fully that there's no chance in hell, he's going to say yes. And he goes, what do you need? I said, I need full access. I need to have you mic'd up. Have Gary Williams mic'd up for pregame, halftime, postgame, during the game, all of it. He's like, okay. I was like, you understand that you're going to be mic'd up, and you know I'm not going to kill you if something bad happens, but you understand that I have full editorial control. I got it because he trusts me. Like that's a fine. And we did a phenomenal five part series on this trip, um, and it was from really, really from that point forward that one of the reasons he's coming on here. Next week, if if I had done something in the other vein, I'm probably not doing this right now, hanging out with you guys. I'm not going to know you guys. I'm fired from my job because I can't talk to the head coach of Maryland basketball, and I wouldn't be having him on as a guest next week. He's, uh, he, as you guys know, he's an interesting character. Can't wait to talk about his golf um, next week. But, but chick, trust is a but chick like Fred, like great athletes like Fred, like great coaches like Gary. Gary had as still does an amazing ability and an understanding of knowing the media is part of the circus. You either get them on your side or they will bury you. And now Mm -hmm. if he doesn't like you or trust you, that's the end of you. And that's the end of you in a hurry, as you know, but you know, Fred, you knew this when you were playing on the PGA tour, Fred, you were always one of those guys that we could always go to with a tour issue. I remember the, the Casey Martin issue or something of, of that effect, or it would be like nowadays it'd be the long putter or the distance debate. There are certain guys you can go to and because they have an understanding of, of how the whole circus works. Gary is gruff and rough as he can be. And I love Gary. It's one of the, the honors of my life is to be friends with Gary. Wade. It's mm-hmm. amazing Absolutely. is he will tell you to this day in his mid seventies, that if you don't get the media on your side early, you can get snowballed in a hurry in college basketball because they'll run you out of town. And, and I think Gary, it doesn't surprise me at all. Chick. First of all, he likes you. He's friends with you and respects your work. But it doesn't surprise me at all that he would invite you in. I, I, Fred is the same kind of player. I'm not just saying it because he's here. Fred was the same kind of guy in his day. Fred was always open and welcoming to people who wanted to ask him questions or to kind of get an understanding of what was going on. And I think to me, the best players in golf, the best coaches in team sports, you know, have an understanding of it's, it's a little bit more than just about them 
outside of the periphery of when they're competing. And Gary had a wonderful understanding of that when he was coaching. I'm going to ask you in a second to give me your worst moment when it comes to post-round interviews. I'm going to give you one of mine, and it involves the guy sitting there, Fred Funk. Okay. <laughs> this is, this is, so I forget what year it is. It's Kemper or whatever, whatever title of that damn tournament had, it had 37 different titles. Um, but it's, and I'll tell the caddy story on the, on the next uh, episode when we get Seve on. Um, but I, I caddied for, or <laughs> I carried the bag for Fred for uh, a nine during a pro-am in which they put in bricks in the bag and maybe lug this thing around and it was painful, all that jazz. But I'm trying to be, you know, as professional as I can. Meantime, we're both mic'd up, so we're, you know, telling stories and I'm getting great stuff and blah, blah, blah. It's always pressure when Fred plays uh, at home, um, certainly uh, TPC Avenel. And you, on a Friday, it was the tournament that you missed the cut. <clears throat> And I'm on 18. I'm fully not expecting this. And as you walk, I know you're going to be upset, but it's like, and I got the microphone, camera, Fred's coming out of the scores. Taney walks up and I go, Fred, and I didn't even get the next word out. And he just went, I can't, ah, gone. And we just kind of turned and looked and watched him walk away. I'm like, scratching heads like, and I was like, and the first time I'm going, I get it. You didn't want to talk. That's, whoa, okay, whatever. And then I'm still down at 18. And about 10, 15 minutes later, I get this tap on my shoulder and it's Fred. He's like, Hey dude, I'm sorry. Uh, listen, I just, you know, I'm sorry. That's you want to do something. I was like, yeah, sure. No problem. You know, but that's who Fred Funk is. And, but that's that moment where, and it's happening with Lee Jansen, a few other guys where you just, your heart sinks for a second. Um, you're just like, uh, okay. I just got shat on. This is, but fortunately we weren't live, which is cool. But to speak to, to you, Fred, um, you know, you, you realized what took place. And it's not a comfortable situation to talk to a guy who has, did not accomplish what he wanted to accomplish and, and or played bad um, in his own estimation. And now to have to talk about it, that's just not, that's not a fun time. No, it's not. But uh, Steve hit a uh, key word, I think, describing the tour as a circus. And it, we, we really are. We're – a group of guys that travel from town to town to put on our show. And that show encompasses a lot of people. And we, I think the guys that get it, they really do get it and realize that that relationship with the media is important. It's important to the media guys to have that relationship and don't stomp on them and realize they're just doing their job. And like that instance, you were doing your job, and because I didn't do my job as well as I wanted to, I hampered your job <laughs> and I went back and, and I'm sure Mark, my caddy, I probably got, he said, you got to go back and talk to Chick. Really? You know, I, I'm not positive. I did that on my own. <laughs> <laughs> I think either my wife or Mark got in my face and said, you got to go back and talk to Chick. So, um, you know, that wouldn't have been the first time I, I've done that. Mm -hmm. uh, I can get pretty, uh, mad at myself and upset at myself and, and when I don't play as well as I want to, but, uh, you know, you take five minutes to calm down and, right. uh, but you shouldn't need that when, when you're doing your job, I should be able to be big enough man to, to answer some simple questions. Mm -hmm. I played like shit. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
So go go. It must have been one, it must have been one of those three days a year where you actually missed one fairway, Fred. So you we were upset at yourself. That's that's understandable. <laughs> yeah, Steve, I got a new new line now. I can still hit fairways if I can reach. <laughs> <laughs> like ten at ten at Beth Page Black when they first went there for the U.S. Open in two thousand two. Oh, oh I couldn't reach oh that one. God. That was ridiculous. That was ridiculous. That was. That was <laughs> what did you do? How did you play it? I laid up in the walkway. Oh yeah. And I, I was able to hit it. I actually hit the walkway. But uh, actually, I got a story on that because uh, was it Ken Meeks was USGA guy in 2002. Tom Meeks. Yes. Tom Meeks. Well, who did I say? Ken Meeks. Yeah, Tom Meeks. So I didn't make that one. That was the year the Tiger won. And I was watching the telecast, and they had that really cold, rainy day, and nobody except for the longest of hitters were making it to the fairway on 10. And then Nick Faldo, not Nick, uh, Nick Price, missed the uh, fairway actually went to the left because he couldn't reach. I don't know where he was going, but uh, Tom Meeks was in the tower and the guy says, uh, so Tom, what do you think of number 10? He said, well, nothing in the rule book states you have to reach your fairway. And I went nuts. I was ready to throw something through the TV. I says, I'm going to get that guy somewhere. I'm going to get that guy. And I was just so mad at the USGA and the head of the USGA was having that kind of attitude about setting up a golf course and I think to this day, Beth Page, I did, uh, I played it in the next one, 2009, 10. 2009. Lover, yeah. Uh, yeah, nine. And that's the first time I experienced the 10th hole. was my first hole, actually. And uh, I think it's one of the best golf courses I've ever played. And still one of the most – I think it's the most difficult. But the back pedal a little bit, uh, I saw uh, – or I was playing – two weeks later, I was playing – good somewhere and I got in the press room and they brought up Tiger Woods and I brought up Tom Meeks in the USGA oh boy and I buried him I said he must have had his head so far up his ass to say that and believe that about the setting up a golf course on the 10th hole of Bethpage and it hit front page of the papers I, I went no this is great you know I got him <laughs> and uh and and I, it it worked perfect and then I saw Tom and I had a relationship with Tom I knew him a little bit at the time and I saw him at a, some event at a cocktail party at a pro-am thing. And I went up to him and he goes, and I, before I could even say anything, he says, Fred, I have to admit, I at least had my head halfway up oh, wow. my ass when I set that up. And I went, no, I disagree. I think it was all the way up. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it just went up. It, it, it <laughs> carried on. The conversation was great. He just said, yeah, that was pretty asinine to set up a hole where, 80% of the field couldn't even reach the fairway because of the conditions. Wow. It was brutal. It was, it was ridiculous. We're talking with uh, Steve Sands from NBC, the Oprah Winfrey slash Barbara Walters of post-round <laughs> interviews. Um, but it does a great job play-by-play, -by, -play, by the way. Uh, how much do you enjoy that? <laughs> oh, it's a lot of fun. It's, uh, I mean, there's nothing more thrilling than, than calling live sports. And uh, right. we, we have a blast. We try to uh, bring a little bit of a, of a fun setting to a uh, – you know, what can be sometimes kind of a mundane atmosphere, uh, especially in the last, you know, nine or 10 months without any fans. Boy, it's great to have fans back. Isn't, so it, isn't it? It's, uh, it's, it's again, I, I've used the word before with you guys. It's an honor to do it. To sit in the booth and, and call PGA Tour golf at the highest level is, uh, is a thrill of a lifetime. So we're talking. Steve, with, I have a question for you. you. Uh, you got sorry to cut you off, Chick. But, All right. Uh, I get a lot of people, they say, so what do you think of Bryson? Yeah. And I go in, you know, I think, the world of Bryson. I think people don't give him credit for how hard he's working yep. and, and what he's done. Uh, granted the ball's going a long way and stuff like that. That's beside the point. Just 
the, the work ethic and everything he's doing to try to separate himself from the rest of the field. So what's it like when you're out there actually talking about his shot? I mean, at the sixth at Bay Hill, the sixth hole, mm-hmm. trying to drive the par five, which is unheard of in, in any terms. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he's actually trying to drive this par yeah. five. So it, it's – I think it's fun. It must be fun for you. Oh, it's, fun. I would oh, think. it's great. I was actually in the booth for that uh, when he hit his tee shot at six. Uh, and we were, you know, in amazement. He would kind of told us that if the wind was right uh, early, I think on Wednesday in the Pro-Am, I asked him um, off camera, if the wind is right, do you think you'll give it a shot? And he said, you know, it depends on the day. It depends on the situation. It depends on how I'm feeling, how I'm swinging, that kind of thing. And uh, you know what? I think Bryson, like most great athletes, you know, he's a showman. You know, he is, he's going to stay within himself. He's going to do his own thing. He's going to play the game his way. But when the crowd gets going and the energy is there, you know, at the end of the day, you guys are the best at what you do. It's why you take the chances you take. And people go, why, why wouldn't he do that? Why would he do that? Well, you know, part of sports is, you know, getting yourself out there and getting after it. You know, I mean, how many times can you hear like Arnold Palmer used to say, you know, if I, if I laid up all these years, I wouldn't be sitting here. The way I'm sitting here is Arnold Palmer. So Bryson, to me, is a fascinating athlete, Fred, because – First of all, he's really smart and he's well-read. Uh, everybody knows the physics and the science, all that stuff, but he's just a smart kid. And I think he's a nice kid. Is he the kind of guy you want to go out and have a beer with every single night? Probably not because I don't understand half the things he's saying, but he's fascinating in this regard. He decided to go about his business one way. He did it unconventionally. He's doing it perfectly legally, by the way. And he works his ass off and he's won a U.S. Open. He's won other events since the weight change, the swing speed, the ball speed, trying to get those miles per hour rising to levels, which we can't believe. And he's doing it and he's doing it his way. And and I respect him for it. And I think the guys on tour, Fred, understand how hard he's working. I think the public is like, this guy's eating 12 milkshakes a day and 15 pizzas. And he's trying to swing out of his shoes and he's going to have a Kurt Warner like career of like four or five great years, as opposed to a marathon career of 20 to 25 years. I don't think Bryson's trying to do that at all. I think Bryson's doing what he thinks is what's going to take him to be the best player in the world. And he's working really hard at it. I also find it interesting, Fred, that not just golf, but tennis and the team sports, every sport's a copycat league, every sport. So you got Rory McIlroy, who's one of the great players in the history of the sport, certainly one of the top five players of his generation, who has a gorgeous golf swing, hits the ball a mile. And he admitted last week at the players or two weeks ago at the players that when he saw Bryson do what he was doing and then succeeding, he thought maybe he would try a little bit of that And it's kind of messed him up a little bit. So I do not think, Fred, and you would know way more about this than me. In Bryson's case, I don't find other guys trying to be like him because, A, they don't want that weight gain. Uh, They don't want to swing that hard like that because you guys hit so many golf balls that it's bound to hurt you at some point, I guess. Uh, But I, I don't find it to be something that people are going to copy. People would love to have this distance 
But after what Rory said 10 days ago or so, I don't know, Fred. I think I think Bryson's out on an island doing it himself and doing it his way. And as you said, working hard at it. And and good for him, man. It's uh, he's a fascinating guy and, and incredible to cover. But the energy he brings, he's starting to be, you know, who's going to replace Tiger? Nobody's replacing Tiger. Phil, nobody's replacing Phil. All that stuff. But I think of all the young guys, I think the audience is fascinated as well with Bryson DeChambeau. The ratings were way up that weekend at Bay Hill, um, and I think he's the kind of guy where people are starting to come to their TV sets their podcasts, their radios, uh, and their newspapers, and trying to figure out what the heck is Bryson DeChambeau doing. I, I think it's really cool. Good for him, man. I think it's really good, but I think the main thing, he validated everything 100%, he's doing. 100%. I mean, when he, what he did at Wingfoot was amazing. amazing. And then, and then it just on and on, when he gets that putter, which he's a great putter on top of, it, it's amazing what he's doing. And, and the fact that he actually got in Rory's head yeah. is – it baffles me that Rory would go being one of the probably the best driver to golf ball when he's on his game right. for accuracy and length and wants to get a, and chase a little bit more yardage. And I just can't see why he would do that, but he did. So Bryson got in his head and Bryson actually in the interview says, I'm not trying to get in anybody's head. I'm just trying to do the best I can do. And I remember my, uh, or Bryson's rookie year, and I was playing, I got a sponsor invite to Sony and we went to dinner. Uh, he and Taylor got to be buddies a little bit. And um, actually Taylor beat him head to head um, when Taylor won the Southern Amateur. Yeah. And uh, right. and Bryson was second, I yeah. think. So, um, but uh, anyway, we were at the dinner and we're downtown in Wacky Key. And I said, and Bryson was already one of these guys that was, was outside the box. He was always coming from an engineering background and, and talking about how he could get better. And I said, so what's the deal with you? And he goes, what do you mean? I said, well, you, you just are out there trying all this different stuff. He says, Fred, I, I really, and like you're saying, he's really an intelligent, well-spoken, well-read guy. And he just says, I'm always trying to find an edge. I'm trying to figure out where I can get better, how I can separate myself and how I can be the best I can be. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And if it doesn't, I try to go back and I'll find something else and I'll try that. But then he came up with the, you know, looking at stats, he's a stat guy and the proximity of the hole or the closer you are to the hole, the better it is. So why not be the best longest driver and try to get as close as you can to the hole. And he came up with this whole, with his team of putting on bulk and mass and training that nobody's willing to go through what he's going through. There'd be very few guys, maybe that next generation, there'll be guys coming up, there are going to be the power lifters and the and the offensive tackles that are going to take up the game of golf and they're going to figure out how to swing a golf club and it'll be a whole different world. But um, there's a lot more to the game of golf than that. And Bryson has seemed to put everything together right now when he's got incredible length. He separated himself in the driving aspect of the game, which is almost impossible. All the kids are long now. They, you know, I was talking to Chick last week and, and they're talking about Lee Westwood not being that long. I said, he's got 172 ball speed. That's plenty long enough to overpower almost any golf course. 180 is extreme. 190 is off the chart. So he's managed to separate himself from, from that aspect of the game, which is really hard to do. So now the guy's got to figure out how can I beat him with that? Well, then he's become one of the best putters. Yeah. 
So when Bryson's on his game, he's going to be really, really hard to beat. All right, so we're having a good time here. I can tell this is going to go long, so we're going to break this up into two podcasts. So for now, for Fred Funk and Steve Sands, uh, we will check you later on Terps on the T. At this point, three Terps on the T, although Sands is really not a Terp. He's a Maryland guy, but he went to Colorado State. But anyway, I digress. Um, that's episode number two. Part one of Terps on the T. We'll see you um, in a couple of days with part two. And Steve Sands tells the story of his worst interview, and it is a doozy. Thanks for listening to Terps on the T. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.